question of truth and everything associated with it is a good example of a collection of concepts and what we might call conceptual habits that are protected and reinforced by language. No matter how deeply we have considered the questions, language perpetually threatens to induce us to use words such as truth and fact, or at least understand them, in the same way as we use them before our philosophical revision and rethink. So, only yesterday I found myself starting an episode by saying, despite everything that I've said in previous episodes of this series and countless other pieces of writing and speaking, indeed for most of my life, I found myself saying that, quote, education is usually more concerned to inculcate a set of culturally approved criteria that we should apply in order to decide whether something is true than it is to educate us in the truth. And I stopped at that point because I couldn't believe that I heard myself saying what I was saying or that I had said what I had heard myself saying. The point I wanted to make, which I still want to make and think extremely important, indeed vital, is that our acculturation and therefore our education as a major component of it is desperately concerned to influence and often control how we approach such an important question as truth because on that hangs so much of the stability and sustainability of that culture. Key elements of that involve trust in different kinds of authority, governmental, religious, societal, ethical, and latterly scientific. Because where we lose faith in those authorities, or where those authorities lose the confidence of what we might call the people, we are faced with cultural, national, tribal, and eventually personal disintegration. We have nowhere to stand, nowhere to look, and everything appears to be in a state of change and flux. It ceases to be possible to have any confidence in anything. We find ourselves completely at sea in a boat full of holes. So why was I disturbed? Shocked might be a better word to hear myself saying what I had said. Not because I do not believe it when it is understood in my terms, which is to say in the terms I've been advocating in these episodes of Series 9, but because it could so easily be misunderstood as a tacit acknowledgement that conventional, traditional views of truth are alive and well 
and possess their own indelible legitimacy. And as a consequence, I found myself for a while incapable of saying anything because there was more to what I wanted to say than I had said, but I couldn't quite find the words to put it into words. And I effectively made a mess of about six episodes, all of which I've deleted, because rather like the centipede, I lay distracted in a ditch considering how to run. Fortunately, my non-conscious brain was less confused than my conscious brain, and overnight it has sorted out the core of the problem, which is this. The view of truth, and with it the notion of facticity that I am opposing, is that there are truths and facts that are permanent and unrevisable. This conception arises from an implicit endorsement of the principle we've talked about before from Lev Shestov, the one he doesn't agree with any more than I do, the simul jubere semper parere principle, decide once, obey forever. Decide what's true once, believe it forever. Decide upon facts once, believe them, teach them, promulgate them forever. Rather than seeing truths and facts in terms of the best we can do right now, as we should, and as such revisable in the light of new circumstances, new discoveries, new thoughts, new theories. This principle sees truth and fact as immutable, as inscribed in and emanating from the laws of the universe as a permanent feature of a reality guaranteed and ordained by the laws of the universe or of a god. And alongside those truths and facts come those who, like Plato's guardians, have access to them and the power to mediate and interpret them, who are in effect a priesthood mediating eternity to lesser mortals. And along with that priesthood, we find monarchs and emperors, presidents, governments, intellectual and political and economic elites to whom the rest of humanity must defer because without them we supposedly have no means of living our lives in ways that are compatible with the laws of the universe and so that are what are said to be sustainable and morally good. This view, and all of it more or less, I completely and unequivocally reject. There are no such truths. There are no such facts. There are no such priests. And there are certainly no such platonic guardians, even though there are plenty of people who want to see themselves as such.
the paraphernalia of civilizations built upon these assumptions are fraudulent, as are the notions of truth and facticity with which they operate. Of course, the fragility of civilization and its tacit and sometimes explicit realization of that fragility lead to practices such as those I've outlined in which we are more concerned to teach and establish the criteria of authority than we are to establish the truths that it is best for us temporarily and revisably to endorse and believe. In other words, and this is the key point, our civilizations would rather have everyone believe incoherent nonsense that our civilization endorses than alternatives that would be better for everyone that it does not. Let me say that again. We would rather have everyone believe incoherent nonsense that our civilization endorses than alternatives that would be better for everyone that it does not. It is more important, in other words, for that civilization that we have systems of authority and stability than that we have access to alternative worldviews through which we might embrace lifestyles that would enable us to thrive, including, thinking about what we've said in these episodes, alternative views of prosperity and of the kinds of lives that we would lead if we adopted them. The traditional way we think of truth and facticity is a central pillar of the attempt by every civilization to establish its own permanence by creating the impression that it is built upon a bedrock grounded in the laws of the universe, of the natural world and of a deity who created that natural world. Therefore, to question the legitimacy of these notions of truth and facticity is tantamount to seditious. It can be treated as a direct assault on the foundations of the civilised world, where civilised is here, of course, in scare quotes, because to describe it thus arises only from that world's authentication of itself as civilised. Of course, someone may perfectly well say, but what is the alternative? Are we to adopt methods of socialization and education that undermine the authority of our own civilization just because its beliefs could one day come to seem mistaken, even quaint? How can we teach anything? if we simultaneously question the authority of what we teach and those who have established it and who teach it. No culture can be expected to undermine itself. 
so no system of self-replication can be expected to disrupt its own self-replication. Or so it may seem. But that is really the central point, that it is not necessary to treat truths and facts as permanent and absolute if we first establish pragmatic methods through which they become revisable in principle. To live in a world where we all understand and acknowledge that we are just doing the best we can right now with the knowledge and resources at our disposal is to live in a thoroughly different world from the one we at present inhabit. To appreciate that everyone is to some extent stumbling around in the dark trying to find the light switch, but that everyone has a role to play in helping us to survive those circumstances, is to reconfigure the world along lines that would fundamentally change the structures of power and authority and empower everyone to feel and adopt a more constructive and vital part in the affairs of the world. Instead of being conditioned to look to others for leadership, wisdom and guidance, like latter-day platonic guardians, we would all feel that we have a mandate to play a role in the determination of the direction or directions in which the world travels. So my alarm at what I heard myself saying was triggered by a non-conscious appreciation that what I was asking for was not that education teach truths and facts as traditionally conceived, but that it teach a system of inquiry in which questions about authority and facticity, about legitimacy and truth, go hand in hand, and where we learn from our earliest years that there are no questions of truth or fact that sit independently of the means to establish truth and fact. And so, that our truths and facts are only ever as good as the structures of authority that endorse them, which include ourselves. And none of them are exempt from the reality that they are, after all, temporary, fallible, revisable human constructs. Which is a way of saying that despite the inevitable self-endorsing circularity of all systems of truth, knowledge and reason, we have a choice about which systems we endorse and some, or so I'm claiming at least, are definitely better than others. Determining which are better, and in so doing, creating and expanding them, is the principal task of all intellectual endeavour. Which self-authenticating systems do we do best to endorse right now? because there are no systems that are not circular and that therefore do not require some kind of self-authentication.
But this present education, sorry, this presents education with a considerable dilemma, exactly like that of Otto Neurath's ship, which needs to repair itself while it's still at sea. How do we revise the systems we endorse while we are using them, as we must? To the extent that we have temporary, revisable certainties, things we believe we can rely on at least for a time, and therefore treat as facts and truths, they sit upon and derive their legitimacy from the collective authority of humankind. And that authority is never unequivocal because it emerges from diverse and disparate perspectives created by and born of different cultural traditions. The world, in scare quotes, in its conventional traditional dispositions tends to want fixity, permanence and certainty of what I'm going to call a pre-pragmatic kind because the rigidities present in such frameworks afford it a corresponding sense of its own permanence in the face of what the hymn calls change and decay in all around I see. Its God, O thou who changest not, is correspondingly conceived after a notion of perfection that is quintessentially static, because over against it we set the impermanence of our own existence. And that we love to reflect on the contrast between permanence and impermanence in funeral services by singing that hymn, Abide With Me, just testifies to the mistaken senses of rigidity, permanence and loss that accompany us throughout our lives. Over against the apparent dissolution of a person we conceive of as permanent, we set the immutability of a God. We would do better, I suggest, to join Heraclitus in seeing everything as flux and change, because then we would live lives more likely to ensure that when we dissolve in infinite spaces, they will taste of us, in Rilke's magnificent words. Thank you for listening.